Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this special birthday edition of My Time Capsule. Yes, My Time Capsule, the podcast where people tell me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, the five things from their life that they would put in a time capsule, four things they love and one thing they want to bury and forget, is two years old. Hooray! And to celebrate, we have a very special guest, the stand-up comedian and presenter, Harry Hill. So, I don't think I need to say much more, do I? Oh, okay. All right. For the few of you who haven't already gone, oh, great, this will be a good one, then here are some of the things Harry has done. He was a doctor, and then he became a stand-up, winning the Edinburgh Festival Perrier Award in 1992. He then did a radio series for BBC Radio 4, Harry Hill's Fruit Corner, which led to his first TV series on Channel 4 called Harry Hill. Before he moved to ITV with Harry Hill's TV Burp, And then he started narrating You've Been Framed in 2004 and continues to this day. He wrote and starred in Harry Hill's shark-infested custard on CITV, made the Harry Hill movie in 2013 with Matt Lucas, Julie Waters, Johnny Vegas, Sheridan Smith and Jim Broadbent, and hosted a revival of Stars in Their Eyes in 2015. He made Harry Hill's Tea Time for Sky, Harry Hill's Alien Fun Capsule and finally Harry Hill's World of TV. He wrote the West End musical I Can't Sing and is currently working on Tony, a Tony Blair rock opera. He's toured the UK many times with sell-out stand-up shows, which usually have the words Harry Hill in the title. He had his own comic strip in The Dandy. Yeah, it had Harry Hill in the title and has written a number of novels and even had his own fair trade nuts. Harry Hill's nuts. But I should imagine you knew all that. Still, do you know the five things Harry would choose to put in a time capsule? Well, you can find out now. So, happy birthday to us, and I'm sure happy listening to you, because here is the incomparable... What's his name again? And we're off. Okay, welcome to the Michael Fenton Stevens podcast. I'm Michael Fenton Stevens. What a handsome man you are, Michael. <laughs> what you, what's How it are called? You, Harry? All right. Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right, Michael. You? Good. What's it called? It's called My Time Capsule. My Time Capsule. Not to be confused, of course, with Desert Island Discs. No. Nothing, to, nothing, to, do to, with, do nothing to do with Desert Island Discs. It's nothing to do with any of those things. Or any no, of no. those things. It's a very original idea mm. about people being forced to choose things from their life that they love. Yeah. How would that, um, just so I know, how would that forcing take place? Would that be a sort of... Uh, psychological coercion or would it be actual physical <laughs> violence that would force me to um... i've met your daughter fred and i, I have her in the spare room with a man with a thing around his head all right that's far um, enough you know, you've gone too far now i've gone too far now so it'd be like a dawn raid would it dawn raid right five things now yeah come on what are they get in a van put them in there get them in the time capsule now dig you got 20 minutes <laughs> What um, what have been the most uh, unusual things that people have chosen, in your view, Mike? 
Well, I like it when people choose really sort of uh, ephemeral things. Mm. So, yeah, smell of pipe tobacco. Oh, I see, a smell. You could. T- mm. That's quite nice. But well, then you, other people yeah. have chosen entire continents. Craig Ferguson chose America. Oh, really? Yeah, Craig. Yeah. 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 He likes America. Mm. Well, I don't blame him. Yeah, well, it's been very good to him. Yeah. Better yeah. to him than Scotland in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, but not all of it. You wouldn't want all of it, would you? No, I wouldn't. No. But he did. He wanted the whole thing. Yeah. I can't tell you how long it took to dig that hole. I bet, yeah. You'd have to, well, you'd have to find somewhere bigger than America, which would be <laughs> Russia, I suppose. I mean, it's awkward then. Russia. That's where it is. It's my fault. <laughs> Now, Harry, I spoke to an actress called Emma Cuniff today, mm. who years ago used to be in The Bill. I've watched so many episodes of The Bill. I bet you have, uh, waiting for something to happen. And one thing that you noticed was hot dog handshake on The Bill. Oh, right. Yeah, that rings a fake. That does ring a bell. Does that bell. ring a bell? Yeah, it rings a vase bell. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know her. Yeah, I know her. Emma Cuniff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just Googled her. I've looked at her face. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she was in the book. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it was very good to her. You know, I'm talking about this old show I used to do, TV Burp. Brilliant Burp. Where I yeah. would have to watch every episode of the bill. And um, <laughs> see, in the old, when we first started TV Burp, it was great because the bill was a bit chunky. It was a bit sort of... You know, each episode would have like a, a, a story arc where it'd be some, you know, the, it would be the uh, Jasmine Allen estate. I was trouble going off on the Jasmine Allen. <laughs> <laughs> and it all run down Not there. again. Yeah, and it would be yeah. some kids, you know, doing something. And then they changed it. Like, well, you must have been in the bill, mustn't you? Every actor worth his sort's been in the bloody bill. Yeah, I have been in the bill, yeah. Mm. And what part did you play? I played a computer expert. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get this computer analysed? We'll take you to the computer expert. <laughs> I had to stand there and tell the policeman how to uh, install the computers in their offices and they all stood and looked confused yeah. while, I, while I desperately <laughs> tried to remember the words that I was supposed to say. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but they changed it from that. Someone, they obviously got a new director or a new direction for it and, and they started shooting it so it was more sort of gritty and um, mm. it became more about the relationships. They Basically, it's like all these shows... This is, sorry, a bit of a hobby horse of mine. Yeah. Holby, Casualty, The Bill, all those shows, they didn't become about medical problems or crime. They became about the relationships yes. between... They basically became soaps because they ran out of crimes and they ran out <laughs> of medical conditions. Of medical problems? They did. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's true, actually, because yeah. The Casualty used to start every week with somebody climbing a ladder. Yeah. And you'd go, oh, he's for a fall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I've done one of those as well. I think I've played that part as well. Oh, yes. Some... Just hand me that span. Oh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so it would be that thing of, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just going up the ladder to fix the area, but you've only got one leg. Nah, it'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> In this storm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. My favourite bit was the bit where the uh, charge nurse, one of the... Um, you know, there were two charged nurses, wasn't there? There was a lady one and there was Charlie yeah. from The Long Good Friday. Yes. And he, um, <laughs> she ended up, I'd forgotten she got pushed down a hole and she got ended up with a spike going <laughs> right through her, going into her back and coming out of her stomach, <laughs> impaled <laughs> a spike for a whole episode. <laughs> Makeup were delighted. Yeah. They were so excited. Yeah, and Survived. Survived survived well as you would do <laughs> mm. now i think yeah. you're right it did start out with all of them where somebody's looking at people who'd got injured or got hurt and they were taken to the casualty and then at the end they got released or died yeah and eventually you'd have people coming in and people saying do you mind we're trying to have a conversation here about how much we love each other yeah exactly can you just wait over there yeah the, the other and the other change i mean there were two problems that casualty has which is the other one was that they changed the name of the place where you go when you're in an emergency, to accident emergency. It's not even called casualty anymore. So that was a problem for them. Um, but also what they started doing, I know it was a, a cutback, but they started making, instead of general public getting ill, they made the doctors and nurses, people who worked at the hospital, suddenly started getting ill. Yeah. So that was it. You know, well, had mental problems, didn't they? Mental problems, Mike, as we call them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd know. Yeah. Yeah, well, I would. Dr Matthew? Yes. Wouldn't you? Mm. 
It's pretty good from that point of view, I think. Except it was what they didn't include was all the swearing. <laughs> That's my memory of casualties: just people swearing, <laughs> blood, vomit, feces, and swearing. Oh, my story. And I was going to ask you why you quit. Well, mm, I wasn't really cut out for it, Mike. No. I don't know if you've read my autobiography. I should send you a copy of my autobiography. I had an autobiography. Okay, perhaps I should have read it before we did this. Well, (laughs) (laughs) there was an entry in my... Let me see if I can get it. I just happened to have a copy of... What is that enormous pile of books there, Harry? (laughs) Now, there was an entry in my diary when I first started being a doctor, which is back in 88. Mm. And it was... Where the hell is it? (laughs) <laughs> basically, uh, basically, what it was is was me saying I've been on the job for a month. Mm. I've made many mistakes. It says, "Oh Lord!" It says, "Number one, diagnosed heart attack in normal woman. <laughs> Two, was accused of daydreaming during an operation to replace an aortic aneurysm just as the surgeon burst a vein." <laughs> And there was one other, I can't remember what the other one was. But, but I'm the, laughing because it wasn't a relative of mine. Yeah, yeah. So you can tell from that that I wasn't a natural, I wasn't a natural doctor. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a bad doctor, but I wasn't, I wasn't interested. You think with all these things, it's, it's like, you know, any job where you basically you have to devote your life to it. So, you know, if you're an, a doctor, actually, if you're a comedian, you have to sort of want to think about it all the time and be interested enough in it to, to do that. And, and that, was my, yeah. that was my problem, really. I wasn't interested enough. So were you daydreaming about comedy? Yeah, I used to have a fantasy where I would be in, and this is absolutely true, where I would be in casualty and John Cleese would be brought in. It was always John Cleese, even though I was a, you know, <laughs> I was a fan of Monty Python, but particularly he would be brought, be brought in ill mm. and I would make him better. And in the process, we would become friends and he would see how funny I was and would ask me to uh, write for him in uh, on his next project. Yeah. That was my fantasy, yeah. And have you ever worked with him? No. I was in a restaurant once with him, not on his table. My wife said, look over there, it's John Cleese. And I could barely look because I was, mm. you know, I don't know who it is that does it for you. Well, it's you, Harry. No, of course. Oh, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who is it, though? Oh, actually, you know, it's Sportsman. Ah. It's, it's, um, if I was there and Usain Bolt was sitting the other side of the thing, I would be all a quiver. Really? Yes. Yeah, I, didn't, I was never interested in sport. You know, basically I was a sort of skinny, four-eyed kid that was hopeless at PE. So I, I never had that. I remember meeting George Best. It was, um, it was an episode of... Uh, oh, Jimmy Tarbuck did a chat show. Do you remember? Yes. Tarbuck Late. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a guest on it and George Best was in the green room. And all these sort of middle-aged men were just sort of like jellies. Oh, it's George, yeah. George, George, can he... You know, they didn't really have any effect on me. No. But it is that thing. I have seen that in people when they meet a sportsman. That, you know, they, they it's, some, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Just like your gods, in a way, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's often things that you couldn't ever imagine yourself doing. True. But yeah. not in your case. Well, with John Cleese, well, yeah. that back then anyway, I mean, God knows, I don't claim to have achieved what he achieved, but um, it's it's a lot to do with actually, I think, who you like when you're a teenager yeah. or a kid. Those people really cast a long shadow, I think. Yeah. No, and I think Python particularly, that, that yeah. does, doesn't it? I've recently, just occasionally on Twitter, I've put something out and then found that it's been liked, just liked mm. by Eric Idle. Oh, really? Mm. I just stare at it. Going, oh, my God. Yeah, I met Eric Idle. Yeah? I met Eric Idle. I met Michael Palin and Terry Jones, but never Cleasy. I have worked with Cleese. Oh, you have? Yeah. What's he like? I, it was great. Yeah. We remade all his... He had that company that made the training videos. Yeah, corporate videos. And we remade loads of them because, although they were incredibly lucrative, they eventually ended up with lots of men with drooping moustaches and their collars outside their jackets. Right. smoking cigars. And only men. Mm. And so they redid it all again. So they cast mm. it with people who would suit the time. Mm. Yeah, and we had a brilliant time. He was very, very good fun. Mm. Although he had a habit, which I think comes from experience, of talking right up to the moment where somebody says action. Oh, yes. Which mm. is really hard. Yeah. The anecdote would keep going. And they go, okay, five, four, and he'd go, and that's why he did it. Anyway, and then he'd go into the line. Wow. And go, oh, mm. Jesus, I can't concentrate. I can't think. Mm. But I suppose he's very bright and uh, and a better mm. actor than me, probably. 
<laughs> well, you have to sort of get in the zone, don't you? I like to. Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I don't really like being on the bill. Not the bill, the TV show, but <laughs> on a bill with people, with other comics. Yeah. Particularly if someone you haven't seen for a while, you know, you just chat and then suddenly you're on and you're, you're just not quite on it. Mm-hmm. You know, you do need that time of pacing up and down, I think. Just going through it in your head. Getting into the... Yes. Like a sportsman. I mean, in a way, it's always hard from the outside to imagine how you construct your shows because they seem so sort of chaotic and disorganised. I mean, deliberately disorganised. Mm. And so I suppose, really, the organisation of making things look like that is is harder than actually having a straightforward thing where you just run a whole bunch of stories together. Yeah, I think it's probably the same. I mean, it's funny, actually, Mike, because I'm I'm getting ready for a tour Mm. It's not till the autumn, but I was talking to uh, Alan Davis about it, and he's someone I always kind of admired him because he would get like twenty minutes out of one subject. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so it'd be cats or whatever it would be, <laughs> and he'd do twenty minutes, and I'd have one gag about cats, and that would be over, and then I'd have to do another, you know, it's another one and another one, and I never really, I had like kind of flags in the sand along the way of this act. You know, so I knew I was starting, I knew I'd finish on, and there was a few bits along the way. Mm -hmm. But I never had a rigid order. Right. Because I've always liked to sort of feel it. Yeah. You know, so if something happens, you think, oh, yeah, I need to do a quick laugh there and then a bit perhaps ready for a longer bit. But, of course, as you get older, it's just so difficult to retain all the... um, all the stuff. Mm. And also, I'm a bit lazy about uh, learning it. <laughs> that wouldn't help. No. But do you find also that, that having been off stage, that in a way your comedy brain just slows down a bit? I always find that, that when I get back to doing something which you've done with ease before, that it takes you a little while. Well, I never stop. Yeah, I mean, you only need to have a week off, really, and it's just slightly not quite on it. Yeah. Particularly, actually, the thing about it is... If the audience are very generous, and you know, most of them are, you're fine because you've got that bit of thinking time. But if you get a slightly tough one, that's when it really, which is obviously the worst time. <laughs> yes. They told us you were funny. Yeah, exactly, you know. <laughs> and there is that, you haven't got that thinking time. It's not quite at your fingertips. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay, well, talking of thinking time, have you done any thinking about the things you'd like to put into a time capsule? Well, I, I have, yeah. Do you want to know what they are? Yeah, well, let's see what they are in any order you like. Well, the first one is my adopted son, Gary. My son, Gary, from my first marriage, I should say, which, mm-hmm. who is um, my ventriloquist's dummy. Yes. Don't I have to say that quietly because I don't want him to hear. <laughs> Gary, he's here, right? He's, he's in this room Is he somewhere. there? Oh. He's, he's good. He's keeping very quiet. Yeah. Hello, Daddy. <laughs> Yeah, he's over there. But he, um, it's a funny thing. I'm not, obviously, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really a ventriloquist. No. <laughs> You're so kind. <laughs> I have Gary. I'm going to go and get him, actually, because it's pretty easier to talk about him when he's with me. Yes. Excuse me for one moment. Certainly. Start whistling. <laughs> uh, Gary, come on out. Michael Fenton Stevens. Hello, Michael. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> You're looking very well. You are very rosy cheeked. Well, I've just painted him up. Oh, uh, actually, yeah, because he was doing. Um, t- you tell uh, Mike what you were doing before. Well, I was doing the Chris Whitty impressions. <laughs> he would have. Um, I had like a bald head, didn't I, Daddy? Yes, you did have a bald head, Gary. And I used to do my Chris Whitty. Impression. Do a bit for us now, mm. uh, Gary. Uh, yeah, my name's Chris Whitty. Uh, shut your cob, back off, and wash your dirty hands, you bastard. That's uncanny. <laughs> yes, I'm planning that Gary would take over the business from me. Well, you must feel threatened by him because the talent pours out of him. Yeah, well, he's not. I'm very shy. I know you are. Gary. He's naturally, he's not a natural comedian, but we're working on it, aren't we, Gary? Yes, I am. We are working on it, Daddy. Why don't you do one of your jokes? He's, he's bought some jokes. He bought some jokes from oh, one of the joke writers. Mm-hmm. I say, Daddy. Yes, that, Gary, what's, um... <laughs> my, 
Sister. Your sister, Gary, yes. Had two of her fingers removed and is unable to use the uh, control thing for a, a video game. Really, Gary? Yes, she's inconsolable. <laughs> when she was... When he broke the... When the surgeon broke How much did that joke cost? <laughs> when he broke the news. Are there more? I say, Daddy. Yes, Gary, but... Uh, don't do that noise, Gary. It'll limit your appeal. Um, I... Uh, what, Gary? I... Um, <coughs> My friend bought a uh, Louis the Fourteenth bed the other day. Really, Gary? Reproduction? I don't know what he's planning to use it for. <laughs> 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 ah. Ah. Oh, that's a bit saucy. <laughs> a little bit saucy, that one. Anyway, I'll put him down. It, it gets a bit <laughs> wearing. Um, it's, it's exhausting. So, Gary, I'm very. And the thing about Gary is, joking apart, is that this puppet dummy mm-hmm. is. Um, 1930, so it's almost, well, it's 90-odd years old. Yeah. It's a very old dummy. And I love that history of the kind of pattern of him. When you take the back of his head off, you can see all the workings. And, and I imagine, I don't know, you know, where he came from originally. I bought him off a bloke who basically is a dealer. He's a ventriloquist dummy dealer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, my wife is bringing in a cup of tea and a chocolate eclair. Oh, marvellous. <laughs> oh, well, fantastic. Thank you. That doesn't happen for a while. Thanks, honey. <laughs> What's she after? Um, that's fantastic. What inspired you to buy it then from this dealer? Um, well, I had it. We used to hire him. When I did this Channel 4 show, I used to have him playing the part of the controller of Channel 4. Yes. Which was a bit stupid, really, because it didn't exactly enamour me with the um, controller of Channel 4. No. In fact, I remember after the second series... I'd been invited to some do, some sort of Channel 4 do, and I looked across the room and there was the control of the real control of Channel 4. Mm. I thought, oh, I'll pop over and say hello. And as I approached him, he made a beeline for the door. <laughs> <laughs> so the writing was on the wall. But um, It's a real shame he wasn't sitting on someone's lap and they had their hand up his back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when the show finished, I bought him. Mm. I mean, I paid through the nose for it because obviously this guy didn't really want to sell it because he was making a nice number uh, renting it. But um, Is that the show that came from your radio series that you did? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. So that meant I could tour around with him and every tour I've done, I've, Gary's come along. And um, mm. The funny thing was that, you know how some people have a phobia about ventriloquist dummies? Yeah. I can't. I don't know what it's called. There's some kind of name for it. But it is a, a recognised phobia. And... Um, I have this bit in the last show I did where I have Gary on and then uh, I, I get rid of him. And then this, I had a, a very short guy, was Kevin his name is, he's about, I don't know, four foot eight or something, mm. dressed up as Gary with a hole in the top with Gary's head. So it looks like Gary's anyway. So I've got Gary on and there's this guy in the front row with this phobia and he's sort of really looking scared. <laughs> but when, he, when, the, when the, the little guy runs on, <laughs> he almost jumped out of his skin. <laughs> <laughs> All his fears had come yeah. true. <laughs> oh my God, they're alive! <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Priceless. So that's gas. <laughs> yeah, you have a thing, don't you, with little glove puppets, and mm. you've got your mm. cat, Stufa. Stufa. Yeah. Stufa's here somewhere. I was in Nashville on holiday years ago, and I bought this rubber puppet there. And I was staying in this hotel called the Stufa Hotel, ah. so I called him Stufa. I mean, uh, it's not a very interesting, entertaining story, but it's the truth. <laughs> it's a story. And then when I got the Channel 4 show, I had 3,000 of them made to sell on tour, Mike. That was the minimum order you could get from China, <laughs> right? Three th- yeah. And you imagine, you think, oh, yeah, 3,000. It's like a whole room full. Yes. <laughs> and that first tour, I think I sold 200. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. I've done tours where I've gone, yeah. well, I can get, you know, I can get 500 T-shirts. They're yeah. bound to go, no. I'm wearing them, I'm giving them away. My grandchildren all wear them. Using them as dusters. <laughs> Anything you like. Yeah, the but the funny thing is this sort of a wave of stufa nostalgia. I mean, at the time, that Channel 4 show wasn't really big. It wasn't particularly big. But I've noticed going round 
doing places that when I mention him or bring him out, it, people seem to really, uh, they sort of a few people rem- have remembered him. It's quite sweet, actually. So I'm mm. thinking about getting another 3,000 orders. <laughs> I did read somewhere that there is a video of one of the things you did, which is apparently worth lots of money now because nobody bought it at the time. What was that? I'll look it up and find out for you. And then if you've got any copies. Well, I'll have copies, all right. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to put him into the time capsule the first thing in there okay now you asked me what was the most unusual thing that had gone into the time capsule and you win oh really that's it that's a good start (laughs) let's see where we go from there what's number two harry uh well it's my uh ukulele banjo Mm -hmm. it's the same tuning as a ukulele regular ukulele but it's a little banjo so it's got four strings it's basically the old uh, george formby thing Mm. so where i was a kid in the playground my friend robert it was my best friend's probably still is his dad had an old 78 of george formby Mm -hmm. he couldn't play the ukulele my friend but he used to stand in the uh, in the playground and he used to go like this as if he was playing (laughs) just wiggling his hand yeah yeah (laughs) and he used to sing granddad's flannelette nightshirt and in me granddad's flannelette nightshirt and it was really funny really entertaining i mean you know george formby the fact is, a lot of the songs are basically it's about three songs. It's all variations on the same song, really. Yeah. And but he was an enormous star. He was the biggest star in certainly in this country mm. in the sort of thirties and forties, and um, to a large extent is forgotten. I suppose he is, isn't he? I, yeah. I mean, I remember it very well because I'm of an age. If somebody stood up and started doing it, I'd know exactly. I'd probably be able to sing along. Yeah, yeah. But anyone under thirty probably never heard of it. They're quite rude, actually. The stories of the songs, aren't they? Well, they're that coy thing, aren't they? Yeah. If he did them in the theatre, I think he sort of would change the lyrics slightly. Yeah. When you see the ones on the film, they're quite coy and quite sweet. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when he did it live, it was much more of him being sort of the Blackville version of... Um, Max Miller. Max Miller, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's all these people, like you say. I mean, the George Formby film... I mean, I really like the songs, but they're not... The the films aren't very funny. And when you see footage of Max Miller, it's not very funny, really. No. But obviously, live, they had there was something amazing about them because they, they had to be for everyone to... Um, flock to see him mm. so it's a curious thing that i met a stand-up comedian once who as a young man had been on stage with max miller mm. he was going down well and max miller said you're doing really well son i tell you what i'm going to move you up the bill so i'm going to put you there and then i'm going to come on after you and you get a chance to introduce me and we'll do a joke together and uh, he says he said oh great fantastic he said what's the joke he said well i come on and you say you're all right max i say yes yeah. yeah i've just had my breakfast i had a haddock and you say was it a fatten i say no it was a finnan Finn and Haddock. Oh, I see, yeah. And then mm. he came on and uh, mm. the stand-up comedian said, so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Max Miller. Max Miller came on. He said, hello, Max, you're all right? He said, yeah, yeah, I just had my breakfast. He said, what'd you have? He said, I had bacon and eggs. Fuck off. <laughs> brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tough, tough people, those. Yeah. It was a tough world. Mm. So, so the, yeah, the ukulele banjo, which I've also got here if you want. Yeah, I'm happy. Do you want to play me something? Well... I was uh, a member of the George Formby Society and we did, when the Queen was 92 or something, mm. a couple of years ago, they got us all together at their Albert Hall <gasps> to play Cleaning Windows. And actually the funny thing was, was that they, it was just like one of those weird BBC shows for the Queen, right? So the Queen and all the royal family there, Camilla, Charles, Harry and mm-hmm. uh, William. And they got the George Formby Society, plus me, Frank Skinner and Ed Balls for some reason. Yes. And, and then they've got Sting... And Shaggy, <laughs> you know, all the Queen's favourites, Kylie Minogue, Tom Jones is there. And, you know, those sort of events, the day is really great fun because they're all, everyone's hanging around backstage, you're bumping into Tom Jones and you're bumping into Sting and Shaggy. And in fact, me and Frank, we were waiting to go on and Sting and Shaggy came by and Sting goes, oh, you know, you're doing the George Formby thing. And he started singing Leaning on the Lamp and me and Frank started playing it. And, um, oh my god! It's quite a funny moment. Anyway, no, but the thing was, they said to us, "What happened at the end is that Tom Jones and Kylie, I think, were on." He said, and everyone will line up backstage, and then the Queen will walk on, and she'll sort of, you know, take the applause. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we did our bit. I'm waiting backstage in the dark at the, you know, in the wings at the Albert Hall. I'm right on the end, right the last one on. And I'm thinking, oh great, you know, no one's even going to see me, you know, in that sort of <laughs> selfish way. Anyway, I look round, and behind me is the Queen. 
Right. I looked around and I said, oh, hello. And she goes, um, it's awfully dark, isn't it? And I said to her, haven't you got a torch, Your Majesty? <laughs> and she's, <laughs> she kind of looked at me like I was not allowed to talk to her like that. No. <laughs> and then Frank Skinner said, you should have your own torch bearer, surely, Your Majesty. <laughs> you know, like that. And and then um, Ed Balls got wind of it, like any politician sort of moved in. And, and it became his joke. It became his uh, night, yeah. That's an anecdote that he now tells at mm. dinner parties. Opens with it, I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Here we go, go on. Uh, and in the, in, in, in the family we've got an... And in the family we've got an heirloom. That's it, I've got it. It was. Hey, I've forgotten it. Let's play something easier. <laughs> what those five feet can do is in my go. Oh, brilliant. A bit rusty, mate. A bit rusty. No, it's great. What a fantastic sound, isn't it? My yeah, son plays a ukulele. I'm going to definitely look around to, same to buy him a ukulele banjo. Yeah, and the thing is, if you get one out at a thing, people smile immediately. It's just like a yeah. really fun... Well, the, the reason I like it was, I mean, I'm not a musician at all. You know, I don't, could never really apply myself, and, you know, couldn't put the hours in. But the good thing about ukulele, and obviously I play the ukulele as well, is that travelling around, you know, so if you're on tour or you know, as we... Both know a lot of showbiz is just hanging around waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. Is that you can just carry a, a uke around and you can have it in your dressing room and just while you're waiting, you can uh, amuse yourself with it. Yeah, so that's one of the great things about it, I'd say. Four strings always sounds more easy. It's very easy to get a tune. Right. It's very easy to get a tune out of it. Yeah, you could do that in a morning. Is that because you're basically depressing one string at a time, really? It's one or two. Sometimes it's ah. more, but, but you know, you only need three chords, don't you? And, um, but really the thing with the banjo is it's, it's not about the left hand. It's not about what you're doing with the left hand. It's about what you're doing with the right hand. So it's those rhythms. Yes. And the thing about Formby was that all the ukulele banjo players really rate him as a player because he was just so quick. Mm. I went up to Blackpool for the... George Formby Society Conference. You know, they have four a year. Mm. And uh, that was a really funny weekend. That <laughs> was a really funny weekend. Yeah, yeah. Is it still as strong as it used to be then? No, of course not. No, it's about three <laughs> blokes. No, no, there's a lot of people. There are some younger people. But, you know, I, I was a relatively mm. young person. But there's some brilliant, brilliant players. I bet. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a, like you say, it's a rare thing really mm. to be able to play it really, really well. I can't play it very well. Frank Skinner's a much better player than me. We had the same teacher, not at the same time, but I'm just going to have a bite of this because I can't resist it. Eat your bun. Mm. He is very good, actually, I think, Frank, isn't he? I mean, I've seen him do it, and he does a very good impersonation of George Formby as well, doesn't Mm. he? But it's the lyrics that I remember from those things is seeing them in a film as a young man and thinking, that's rude. That little stick of Blackpool rock, I know exactly what he's talking about there. Mm. Mm. Well, you're older than me, of course. You you listened with innocence, did you? No. No? I just didn't think they were very rude. I suppose, yes, I am from a time when everything was innuendo. Yeah, that sort of saucy seaside. Yeah, no nurse, I said, take off his spectacles. Yeah. Yeah, those I mean, I don't mind a bit of that, but, I mean, you know how everyone goes on about the carry-on films, but you try watching a whole one. (laughs) I mean, screaming's pretty good, and there's some really funny bits in some of them. Yeah. You know, like the carry-on at the Kyber Pass, the, the bombing scene where they try and have dinner and it. That's a lovely bit of stuff. Yeah. But you should try watching a whole one. I mean, they're just awful, <laughs> awful films. No, I think you're right. <laughs> I like the really old ones, actually. Again, you oh, see, okay. I think I like the mm. black and white ones, the carry-on doctor and those sort of things, or carry-on nurse. Is it Jim Dale? Yeah, Jim Dale. That's lovely, that cake. Mm. Is it? No, it's all right. I'm not hungry. Don't worry. Jim Dale, yeah, Jim Dale just disappeared off to... Um, America. America became a big sort of Broadway star, didn't he? Huge, and uh, was mm. in lots of Disney mm. films, wasn't he? Digby the Giant Dog. Yeah. I'm surprised no one's remade Digby the Giant Dog. It'd be brilliant now with the special effects. Do you know, I think they have. Oh, are they? Not Digby the Giant Dog, but I think that Jack Whitehall has just made a film where he's got a huge invisible dog. So that basically would be the same idea, wouldn't it? No, because... No. 
Wasn't Digby invisible? No. Wasn't he? No, of course not. No. It was a giant dog. <laughs> the clue in the title. It's a great big Judox dog, you know, the old English sheepdog. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, if it's invisible, how, what are they going to do? I don't how's know. The, how is that entertaining? I'm not even sure if Jack Whitehall's one is invisible. Mm. I just saw a shot with him being thrown around a room. I'm going to write that. Write it? I'm going to write that film. Yeah. And I'm going to play the Jim Dale part. Well, it would work. I'm a bit old for it. <laughs> See if I can get... <laughs> See if I can get Jack Whitehall sell a few more tickets. <laughs> He's a handsome lad. I remember his dad, uh, I was at a do, and his dad came over and said, um, can my son come and say hello to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before he was... Um, before he really had broken, yeah. Before he sold out. Yeah. To Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> You've done well to resist that. Mm. You know, we've all admired you for that. Mm, yes. Yes, well, it hasn't been easy. Family first, <laughs> Mike. Family first. Family first. Mm. God bless you. Well, there we are. Okay, so I'm going to put your ukulele banjo into the time capsule. That's item number two, Harry. Yes. So we move on to number three. Right, time to take a little break so we can play some ads. And I might cut the birthday cake, actually. Anyone want a piece? Hands up, come on. Uh, yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, oh, more than I thought. Okay, we'll be back shortly. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the birthday party and the second part of Harry Hill's time capsule. Let's find out what else he wants to put in his time capsule. And after I've distributed this cake, yeah, I've managed to cut it into uh, 27,459 pieces. So, uh, who wants the first crumb? Well, I'm a big fan of painting and not painting and decorating, but painting and um, <laughs> wood carving is my latest thing. Really? Yeah. That might be over slightly overselling it, but yeah. So I'm going to put in some of my artwork okay. into my time capsule. And what is the purpose of the time capsule? Is it to sort of capture some sort of essence of you? Yeah, I suppose so. If somebody else yeah. opened it, they get a sense of who you were. Yeah. But also maybe that you can, in your dotage, mm. go back and enjoy things that may have gone. Well, that's perfect for it. Mm. That's perfect for it. So I'm going to put some of that in. My latest uh, painting, I just recently completed 12 oil paintings of Cliff Richard. <laughs> it was from a photograph in the paper. And I did. I started doing them. I thought I'd do 12. And then it was obviously unconsciously. But, of course, 12 is the number in the calendar. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I might bring out an alternative Cliff Richard calendar. Christmas calendar. Christmas calendar, yeah. Very good. I'd buy it. And what sort of style are the paintings, if people haven't seen them? They're quite silly. They're quite funny. One of them, he's had a bad reaction to a crab stick and his face is all swollen. <laughs> Another one, his face and body are made uh, from bricks. Yes. They're on my, uh, I think they might be on my Instagram. I have seen them on the Instagram. Oh, you have. Actually. You have seen them. Yes. Yeah. So when did you start painting? 
Well, I mean, I was always good at art at school. I really loved it and found it easy. It was a funny thing, really, that I ended up doing science. I dropped the art, which I didn't, which I struggled with. You know, it was sort of a, a funny thing. Was that the school? The school push you down that route or, or, or parents? I think it was a bit of both. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that it wasn't really a thing you did for a living. I mean, interestingly, my wife, is, who is a, an, a proper artist, earns her living through art. Her parents were both designers and nearly all her family are in the arts. You know, it was like a scene as a, yeah, go to art school. Yeah. So I've always done it and, you know, I always used to do it. And then I got some more paints and she kind of encouraged me actually. To do it. And uh, it's been, I get a lot out of it. Just, I mean, I don't, you know, it's a hobby. Yeah. I'm not trying to sell them or um, exhibit them really, although occasionally, you know. No, although it's interesting. There are things that really become quite valuable. If in fact you don't sell them, they become quite collectible in that way, don't they? I don't know, really. I mean, um, whenever I have had exhibitions and I don't like to sell them because I like them too much. Yeah. It's not bloody good, is it? (laughs) No. But whenever I have had exhibitions, I've always had bits nicked. That's why I don't do it now. Yeah. Yeah. There you are. That's what I mean. The rarity of it. Well, either that or they just weren't screwed tightly enough to the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. So carving, wood carving. Yes. I love doing woodwork at school. I I was useless at it, but I love doing it. Yeah, well, you know, school uh, woodwork, when we were kids, I'm sure it was the same for you, was it was quite proscribed. In other words, they didn't mm-hmm. say, well, what do you want to make? When do you make that? You know, we made a toast rack. Yeah. As kids, a toast rack. And we and in metalwork, we made a putty knife, which I mean, <laughs> when you're sort of, when you're 11, it's not enormously useful. No, pushing everybody down the line of being a glazier. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the big boom. Don't go into that trade, mate. There's millions of them. Well, enough jobs to go around. They've all got their own knife. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Actually, how it happened was, how I got into wood carving was that we we got a tree in the front garden and one of the branches was going rotten and the um, tree surgeon cut it off. And I said, could you cut it into 12? I think he cut it into sort of 12-inch bits. Mm. And there were five of them. I thought, oh, maybe I'll try Carving that. So I, I started carving one of them into, um, I thought I'd make Jesus, <laughs> right? Yes. And as I carved it, it was looking more and more to me like Acabilk, <laughs> the trad jazz clarinetist. And yes. so I altered it so he had a bowler hat. <laughs> and then the other four, I thought, well, I'll do five jazz greats. So then I did uh, Thelonious Monk, Dave Brubeck. I can't remember the other one. Anyway, there were five of them. And then after that, I uh, started getting wood. So with your art, is your aim always, your aim for Jesus, and you end up with Cliff Richard and Ackerbilk? No, not now, no. I mean, I think you learn how to do it. Mm. I mean, I'm, you know, it, the aesthetic of it is very homemade. You know, it's not, I know I'm not capable of doing like a really accurate um I mean, I think that my message to anyone thinking about art is, and a lot of people don't do art because they're embarrassed. Mm. They're embarrassed and self-conscious and they, you know, it's, it's a kind of a hobby horse of mine in that we as kids spend a lot of time drawing and painting and if you give a kid a pencil or a, a paint box, they'll, off they'll go and, you know, they can kill a couple of hours doing that. Mm. But there comes a point where you become, and it's partly to do with the education is that you become suddenly self-conscious and and most people just stop doing it, actually. They never do it. You know, it's a kind of therapy for me. It's just quiet time that you can, when you're doing it, you you think about nothing else and just, Mm. you know, like yoga or any of these kind of so-called mindfulness things. And you shouldn't worry about what you're going to, it doesn't matter what you produce. It's the process, actually. No. I know that Joe Pasquale does it. Does he? And he says exactly the same thing about it, when you're doing it. You're not thinking about other things. You're just oh. enjoying putting the paint on the canvas. Yeah, there's a lot of people do it. I, ne- I never have, and I think maybe I should. Yeah, you should definitely do that, Mike. Mm. I mean. and, and what you say about children, so you know, with grandchildren at the moment, I'm very aware of that. Is I'm, In fact, I'm always surrounded by, you can probably see in the background, I've got a door absolutely covered in... Terrible paintings. <laughs> <laughs> but they have, you're right, there's no shame in it, mm. and nobody said to them, well, that doesn't look very like me, does it? doesn't look nothing like me. Exactly. And eventually yeah, people do, yeah, I suppose, yeah. which is what shuts people down. It is, yeah. And um, I think the thing is, when you're painting something, it's not about the thing you're painting, it's about you. 
actually, I think. Yeah. The mark on the paper is, is something about you rather than about the thing, probably, without getting too pretentious about it. <laughs> but yeah, I get an enormous amount of pleasure from um, mucking about. I Luckily enough, I mean, the fact is, I've got a little uh, building in the garden that I can use. Mm. And the truth is, you do need dedicated space. You don't need, but ideally you need a, a dedicated space because it, otherwise you've got to set the stuff up. You know, it's half an hour getting the stuff, you know, especially oil paints, you're doing the terps and, yeah. and wood carving. I mean, Christ, wood carving. <laughs> um, and that's why people don't get round to it. But if you have a kind of dedicated space, you can go into it, the spare room or whatever, and you know you can go in there and start pretty much straight away for half an hour. Yeah, it's not about the end product. It's a bit like fishing in a way. It's not really about catching fish, I don't think. No, I think you're right. How lovely. Well, okay, I'm going to take... Well, we'll do the Cliff Richards then. We'll put the Cliff Richards in, is that... Or do you want the carving as well? No, no, happy to take the cliffs. Just cliffs. Mm. In they go, Mm -hmm. into the time capsule. Lovely. So we're on to item number four. Well, I thought I'd put my diary in from 1994. I didn't keep a diary, but it was it's just a list of dates. I haven't got it in front of me, so I can't tell you what's in it. But 94, could be 93, really. But when I started getting regular work as a comic, mm. just those lists of clubs and just reminds me, for me, it was such an exciting time. It was probably the most exciting time of my um, working life anyway. You know, having given up medicine and started being a comic, that, to me, is very... Uh, Evocative. How old were you when you did that, Harry? 26. Mm. 1990, I gave up medicine. And then, you know, I didn't really get many gigs for about two years, 18 months, two years. Mm. But, um, but by 93, 94, I was working five nights a week, you know, two gigs on a Friday, two gigs on a Saturday, sometimes more, you know, it was that. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, dashing about. Dashing about, you know, and the clubs in the 90s in London. Obviously, I was lived in London in sort of Tooting and Balham around there. Mm-hmm. And there were loads of clubs. So there was a great scene. Everyone got paid in cash. So, you'd, you know, by the end of the night, you'd have a great big lots of cash, which is, <laughs> you know, I don't know why any, I don't care what anyone says. It's nothing like being paid in cash. No, the best thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. I always declared it. I mean, I absolutely always declared it. But even so, it was just something about it. Mm. And it was such a difference to being a doctor where it was like, when I trained, it was mainly men. It was a lot of uh, middle-class white people, basically. Mm -hmm. But honestly, when I gave it up, and then I just started meeting people who wanted to be comedians, they were just a completely, (laughs) you know, like when you sort of meet your tribe. Yeah. You know, you just people who are interested in jokes and, you know, what it's like. You get comics together. They, all, all we talk about is, you know, how long do you do? And mm-hmm. did you hear about so-and-so died last night? You know, on his ass. <laughs> and, you know, all this, Yeah, you know. So it, that was, um, it was really a real eye-opener for me. Yes. I can imagine, actually, because when you talk about it, about being young and really enjoying art and then sort of being pushed away from it, saying, no, you don't want to do that. That's a waste of your time. Mm. And yet that's Mm. what you really want to do. You don't want to go and study biology and chemistry and physics. Well, I think what it was, yeah, I had the, uh, I think it's maybe it's a middle class thing or maybe it was a 70s thing of that life is a struggle Mm -hmm. and that it should be a struggle. Nothing comes easy. That anything worth having is you've got to really struggle for. And I think that was part of the thing with medicine was where, you know, like I say, it wasn't a natural uh, sort of physics or chemistry. I mean, whereas I found English and I found art very easy. I mean, God knows why I didn't do that. Mm. Turned out all right in the end. But Yeah, but I mean, in a way, because that was the way that people felt you should go but not the way that you felt you should go. So it took you all the time, all that training. Well, I didn't know. No. I didn't know. You can't know, really, can you? No. You can't really know at that age. But that certainly was part of it, was this idea that you had to um, struggle. Mm. Where actually is, I believe, as far as much as possible, you should do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Most of the time you can't for financial reasons and respond, you know, once we all get... I mean, when I gave up medicine, I had no responsibilities... You know, I had an overdraft, but, you know, I had a way of paying it off because I was able to do locum doctoring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a, I didn't own a property. I rented and, you know, in London it was quite cheap and there was the fair rents if it wasn't cheap. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, all those sort of checks and balances that seem to have evaporated. You know, yeah. I got a full grant yeah. for five years. Mm-hmm. And you got your rent paid during the summer holidays, as I remember. <laughs> you got a rent rebate. 
Remember that? <laughs> it's such a harsh world now for young people, don't you think? Oh, it's terrible. It's really impossible for them. It's disgraceful. I don't know how they do it. No. I mean, I used to sign on as a student in the summer. Yeah, I never did, but... but um... What it meant, I could stay at college mm. in my digs, pay the rent, which mm. I got paid because I was signing on, and I had free milk. Well, that's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. You see, people like you nobbling the system. We ruined it for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) It was just take, 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 wasn't it, until we could take no more. Yeah. I know. I'm happy to get me £250 from equity minimum. And you play 50,000 seaters, Harry. Not 50,000. Not Not 50,000? No. You're not as popular as you used to be? I never played... (laughs) uh, I never had that sort of draw. No. I never played... um, Arenas. I was funnily enough. I was still, I went to Barry Cryer's funeral uh, in the week. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Which was brilliant, actually. You know, and there are comics from all. You know, Michael Palin was mm-hmm. there, and um, Sanjeev Sanjeev Bhaskar was there. Sanjeev was there, and Michael McIntyre and Paul Merton. You know, like across the uh, board. I don't think anyone else could get a turnout like that. No. Actually, and I was talking to Michael McIntyre. He said, "What are you up to?" I said, "I'm going on tour." And he was talking about arenas, and I said, oh, "I just, I just never would want to play them." You know, I mean, I have, I've done a benefit one, the Amnesty International one. Mm. He said, "Yeah, well, you don't enjoy them. You don't enjoy those ones." Oh, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, actually, because he said you can't really relax. He said, whereas if you're in a traditional theatre, mm-hmm. let's say traditional, you know, that can be like from a thousand seats to what, two and a half thousand or three thousand you can sort of relax and you can feel it and you can um, improvise and do all those things that we all do. Yes. But he said with these arenas, he said you the responsibility, you, you feel the responsibility, you can't really control the room. And, you know, and he, as he pointed out, losing, if you lose 10,000 people, <laughs> God, yeah. you know, in, mentally, you know, if they just drift yeah. off. Well, because you start mistiming it. I've, I've played those great big halls, mm. but as part of sort of charity things. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And the weird thing is that the laughter and the reaction comes in different waves. Yeah. And you don't know which one to go for. That's what I found. Yeah, I, I thought it was terrible. It's like uh, you couldn't really time it. No. No, you do something and you think, well, that's gone for nothing. Mm. And then you start the next bit and suddenly you're overwhelmed with this noise of people laughing at the thing because it's taken 10 seconds mm. for it to sort of drift up through the audience. Mm, and bounce back, yeah. The only fun in doing those things would be the, pay, the, yeah, check. the check at the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen you do all sorts of whores over the years, Harry, mm. and uh, I know exactly what you're saying about that thing of you feeling the audience and reacting to it. Mm. I love mm. watching it. Also, just being able to control it is the mm. thing. You know, I think one of the things I, I... It took me a while to work this out, actually, that one of the things I like about being a comedian when it's going well is that feeling of being in control. Mm. Because so much of our lives, we're not in control. You know, we are worried about this, that, the other, or we're thinking about tomorrow or the next thing. Or Whereas when everyone's looking at you and hanging on everywhere you say and laughing at you, you really feel like you're in the moment. You can think you're think, not thinking about anything else. You might be thinking about the next gag. Mm. I suppose it's a, a, an element of ego too, but it's, it's about that feeling of control. Which actually gives you the power to give them what they want. Yeah. And you are manipulating mm. people. You're manipulating the moment. Yes. You're deciding on the length yeah. of the pause before you carry on. Yeah. How long you're going to let yeah. them laugh at something mm. before you go yeah. on to the next thing. It's it's a fascinating thing. It is, yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, and if when it works, like really works, it's really thrilling um, to do, yeah. Well, it's, it's thrilling to watch as well, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I have such happy memories. What is that wonderful routine you used to do where you just move your hand up and down the other way? Yeah, it's barely a routine. Stalagmites and stalagmites. Stalagmites, <laughs> Yeah. They, they rhymed, didn't they? Yeah, they yeah. rhymed. yeah. Miley Cyrus, coronavirus, but anyway. <laughs> so 1993, yeah. all around Ballam and Tooting, dashing in and out of different pubs and playing them. How, what a fantastic thing. Yeah, and I used to drive, you know, I had an old, I used to drive an Austin A30, 1954 Austin A30. And, you know, in those days, when it got dark, the streets were quite quiet. <laughs> yes. As far as driving, you know, you could drive across town, and boom, you, could, you could be straight over you know, to Islington, mm-hmm. you play the Meccano Club in Islington and you could bosh back to the comedy store and you could park in Soho. Mm. I mean, I know we sound like a couple of old farts, but, <laughs> you know, you could just 
you could park anywhere. It's, it was brilliant, yeah. brilliant fun. Yes. Park outside the venue. You know, there weren't traffic wardens, there weren't cameras, there weren't, you know. Mm. I got pulled up once. I was coming back from the comedy store, late show, and I was giving Phil Jupiter a lift, you know, Phil. Yeah. Who at that time was like really heavy. He was like 22 stone or something. He was really sort of big. And um, <laughs> I was coming up Constitution Hill, I had my foot flat to the floor. <laughs> And uh, I got pulled over by the police onto Hyde Park Corner, onto the central bit, mm. right? Blue light, like that, pulled over. And the policeman comes round. He says, um, oh, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he said, you know, he said, you must have been going 60. I said, well, officer, I said, the um, Austin A30 only has an 803 cc engine and the, the maximum speed's 55 <laughs> all right off you go go on <laughs> <laughs> take your mate with you <laughs> yeah uh, yeah brilliant actually the comedy store no it wasn't it was the comic strip in the raymond's review bar oh the original the original that's where mm. i first met barry cryer oh really yeah he came to see the show oh. and which i think again is an example of why he's so admired and always will be mm. because he was so interested he was there to see you know rick and aid and yeah. alexi and those sort of things he was there to mm. see them perform with dave allen wow so the two of them came along wow and you think well you know they're doing all sorts of their own stuff on telly mm. and these are just you know young blokes in a club mm. but they'd heard that there was this new stuff and they wanted to understand it and be part of it and he stayed around afterwards and bought everybody drinks and was really fabulous. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think Dave Allen was a very modern comedian mm. in many ways. You know, he wasn't doing, I mean, obviously, you know, he wasn't doing all that kind of old sort of shtick that the old club comics were doing. You know, he, he was, a, it was a, a lot more intelligent than that. And, you know, and I think he did write a lot of his mm. own stuff, didn't he? I remember seeing him, he did a West End run, oh, God knows, 20 years ago or something. I saw that he did two hours. It was brilliant. And he would weave in all sorts of stuff about philosophy and psychology and all those things. Yeah. He'd talk about really quite complicated and quite heavy things, wouldn't he? And then do these amazing jokes off the back of them. Yeah, yeah. It was quite rude, actually, as well. He was effing and blinding yeah. all over the place, which was refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I've spoken to Freddie Parrotface Davis on my podcast here. I'm thick, thick, thick That's to him. hear. And yeah. he started mm. in a holiday camp with Dave Allen in 19... 19- 62, I think, and uh, Dave Allen used to do an act which he described as being rather like Lee Evans. Isn't that hard to imagine? Mm, it is, yeah, because the whole thing about Dave Allen was this kind of stillness and... Um, being laid back. Laid yeah. back. Well, I'm going to give you that diary so you can, in your dotage, if you can't remember it. Mm. So we've got one more thing to put in, Harry, which is supposed to be something you'd like to reject from your life, something you'd like to throw away and forget. Uh, well, I'm going to put in my uh, stethoscope. Ah. Yeah, I still have it, but because it's like 30 years or well, longer since I uh, did it, <clears throat> I'm kind of more uh, dangerous than um, helpful. Yes, I bet. Now. <laughs> you know, it's that bit of a little bit of knowledge. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll stick that in. Are you still on the um, on the register as a doctor? Well, I always kept up the payments because for a long time you could, if you paid mm. to be on the register, you could write prescriptions. Right. You didn't have to keep up with it. You didn't have to keep up with developments, you know, so I would write myself up for um, heroin. No, for um, <laughs> erythromycin. Well, you know, an antibiotic. If, mm. if I had a sore throat, I'd write myself a prescription. You know, you're not allowed to do that really, but I did. <laughs> uh, or for the kids, you know, if the kids had a tonsillitis or something. Yeah. And also, I, uh, you know, there was a time where comics used to phone me up and say, oh, I've got this, and I would, you know, I might write them a antifungal treatment. <laughs> <laughs> no names, no pack drill. <laughs> I remember one comic phoned me up. Oh, hello, he goes, um, I'm itchy all over. And anyone listening to this will know who it is from The Voice. <laughs> I'm, itchy, I'm itchy all over. I said, oh, right, yeah. I said, yeah, have you, did you, uh, have you sort of slept rough anywhere or stayed anywhere where you wouldn't normally? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I was there last night. I stayed on someone's floor in, you know. Anyway, I said, it's scabies. <laughs> you need this, you know. Yeah. Whatever it was, this sort of paint yourself in this. Yeah, so I, there was a time when I, I remember um, one comedian trying to show me his genital warts in the <laughs> toilet. <clears throat> but um, there was a time when, when I was that, I used to get I'm sure there's other comedians now who I'm 
ex-doctors as if you were around now. It's slightly the curse of being a, anything to do with the medical profession is that uh, everybody immediately... Well, there's two things. Yeah. There's two things, Mike. If the Two worst professions, and if you're in a black cab, comedian, oh, I've got one for you. <laughs> or doctor. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, I've had a bit of a doctor. My back's a bit of trouble. You know, you put the two together, it's a nightmare. <laughs> everybody tells you jokes about doctors. Well, I like jokes. I like them to tell me jokes. I mean, it's, some of them actually go the other way, don't they? Oh, no, oh, yeah, you know, well, I won't tell you a joke. Actually, and, you know, you, because these days, particularly as now Barry Cry's no longer with us, no one tells jokes. Yeah, you know, there's old jokes. Oh, I do. Oh, I'm a joke man, Harry. Yeah, but you don't get new ones. You don't hear new ones much. No, and uh, that was the great thing about Barry Cry was that, that he was a source mm. of new jokes all the time. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody ever really knew how many he'd come up with himself. I don't think he came up with any of them. But <laughs> he must have heard. It must have been a bloke in a pub somewhere who was telling him yeah. stuff. Gonna find my, I've, got my, I've got a book full of jokes, which I, every time I hear a joke I like, I write it down. Brilliant. Brilliant idea. But look, this is one of them. It, it's oh, that's a good idea. Pages yeah. and pages yeah. and pages. I've started to show, find you one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That doesn't make any sense at all. What's your average income? About half past ten. <laughs> I think I must have wrote that myself. That's a sort of your joke. Um, it's, it's so stupid. His computer screen's covered in tipex. Yes, yes. I've got the I've got the Milton Bell joke book. Have you got that? No. Let me turn the light. It's getting dark now. We've been on this <laughs> this podcast for so it's long. Gone. It's got dark. Let me put the light on. Yeah, I've got the. Uh, yeah, here we are. So this is, um, I collect joke books. Mm. I collect jokes. Actually, one of the best books you can get, and I recommend this, it's called the, um, it's called No Laughing Matter, The Rationale of the Dirty Joke. Do you know it? Yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, very good. Uh, and that's great because that's full of, um, but so the Milton Burles people, I'm sure he had nothing to do with it, <laughs> have put together this um, <laughs> this book of and so you can look up any subject. Name a subject. We'll see if Milton's got a joke about it. Childhood. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Ch- children. Children would do. Yeah. Sandwich between cheating and uh, China and the Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> that's very appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two entries. I mean, there's two uh, headings children, and there's also children brackets insults. Right. <laughs> His family, so in the insults, the first one, his family adored him. On St. Patrick's Day, they always gave him a four-leaf poison ivy. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, they're not great. Yeah. They're not great. One day, his folks played hide-and-seek with him. Five years later, he found them in a house 800 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite funny. Yeah. I just gave my son a hint. On his room door, I put a sign. Checkout time is 18. <laughs> You know, That's very Milton Berle, isn't it? Yeah. In its style. Yeah. Mine, uh, to a large extent, where I've gone, oh, I could use that in panto. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I thought you might be a pain in the neck, but now I've got a much lower opinion of you. Yeah. Well, you might need this. I think I would recommend this book to you because um, there's lots of good uh, insults. Right, yeah. Chin. So under chins, for instance. <laughs> chins, yes. She had so many chins, she had to jack up her face to wash it. <laughs> He had so many chins, he had to put a bookmark in his mouth. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounds <laughs> funny. It sounds funny. Okay, though, no, you don't yeah. know which, you know which <laughs> fold to put it in. I can see that's a funny idea. Yeah. That's a good one, actually. I might have that. Yes. <laughs> I'm a self-made man. Well, it's good of you to take the blame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the other, the other one for that was uh, Bob Monkhouse, of course. He had those books. Of- yeah, oh, Bob Monkhouse, yes. The ones that got lost. Well, they were returned to him in the end, weren't they? But I saw them, in fact. After he died, he left them to someone, and the guy, uh, my old warm-up man, um, he got hold of them and he showed... Yeah, they were very interesting. I don't think many of the jokes were his, honestly. Mm. A lot of them were quite generic. But the the layout, the way he'd laid them out was sort of like a schoolboy. They were like a schoolboy's book of jokes. They were, you know covered in these cartoons that you did all these illustrations it was um interesting very interesting yeah amazing yeah because he mm. was a great joke writer i think bob monkhouse but i'm not sure he was necessarily yeah. a great joke teller uh you know it's a f- i mean you know i hate to 
talk ill of the dead. Mm. But I think the, for me, you know, that thing of him on TV was always a bit too oily and a bit too sort of slick and uh, you never really knew, you never learnt anything about him. You know, there was no sort of personality in any of it. It was sort of a bit generic. And, um, and everyone said to me, and I do think this is true a lot of the time, is that you have to see comics live. You know, it's like we were talking about Max Miller and... Mm-hmm. I think that's how he started, actually, Bob Marcus selling jokes to um, Max Miller at the stage door. Anyway, so I did go and see him, and uh, it wasn't really any better. Ah. It was just a bit more smutty. Mm-hmm. But a lovely bloke by all accounts. You can forgive anything, though, because he did write the when I die, I want to die in peacefully in my sleep like my father, not screaming in terror like his passengers, Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. possibly one of the greatest jokes ever written. Yeah. A brilliant twist, yeah. so succinct. It does all the things a joke should do. Absolutely, there it is. Mm. All right, Harry, I'm going to take your stethoscope. I don't know, we've drifted off into... I'm going to put that stethoscope in there and you never have to bother with it again. Although, actually, I've got... I, you couldn't look at this. I've got a little bit of a problem in my back. I know you have, Mike. That's not the least of your problems, though. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> whilst we've been talking, I've diagnosed. <laughs> no, of course not. No. <laughs> I went to see the doctor this morning and he said, I've got some bad news. Mm. You've got 10 left. And I said, what, days, months, years? He went nine, eight, seven. <laughs> Paul Merton at this Barry Cryer thing. We were, you know, like comic students telling jokes to each other. Yeah. And he, it was about Barry's jokes. And he, he said there was this old joke about Roy Castle. You know, he used to do record breakers. Mm. When Roy Castle, is the brother of poor taste, when Roy, Roy Castle was told he only had six months to live, he said, I'll do it in three. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant It's joke. not my joke. It's not my joke. I don't want to be... Ca- don't cancel me, please. <laughs> you have been listening to... My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my birthday guest, Harry Hill. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe on any podcast provider for more guests and all 180-plus past episodes, including our very first guest, Stephen Fry, from two years ago. Ha! Doesn't time fly? You can follow me and the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and you can listen to and download the theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify anytime. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Our next episode of My Time Capsule is another celebrating our second birthday as it's our special listeners edition which should be a proper birthday party and I love a birthday even though, actually, my granddad died at his 105th. Yeah, actually, at the party. Sad. But at least we got to sing happy birthday to him before he went. And we very nearly finished giving him the bumps as well. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.